grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together as we approach this text and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We are busy. We're distracted. We're tired from the week that just passed. And we pray as this new week starts on your day, Lord, that you would meet us here. We pray that you would re-describe reality to us. Help us to see you once again. Help us to see how you've made us. Help us to see how you love us. Help us to see that you're sovereign and you care for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we find ourselves in the midst of these pages. That these, these aren't just vacuous words just floating on the page. But these, this is really our story. And the story of how we need you. So meet us here, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just a common phrase you've probably heard. It's, if, it's, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. You ever had those moments like that where... You know, like you get the mailer in the mail that comes with the car key, and they ask you that all you have to do is show up on this given day, and then they'll, you know, all you have to do is stick, stick the key in and see if it works. And if you do, then you win a, when you rent a brand new car, right? You're, you kind of go, what's the catch? I mean, we've all been faced with moments like this. Maybe it's a Groupon deal, a car dealer promotion, travel discounts, you know, Sunday, Sunday coupons even, where... We look at it and we say the same thing. What's the catch? Where's the fine print? What's really going on here? It seems too good to be true. It probably is. Where's the fine print? What's the catch here? Because I think we've all been disappointed by what I like to call fine print moments in our lives that have left us cynical and skeptical towards the motives of others. Or maybe you've been burned by someone uh, out of a technicality. Maybe a relationship ends in a way that you didn't think it should because it was a fine print moment. Maybe finding out that the only reason someone was in a friendship or relationship with you was so, so that they could get something out of you. And you may have left feeling used and you vowed never to trust again. I mean, think about these moments where we feel like we've been let down by a technicality or somebody's weaseled out of something due to a technicality. And these moments hurt because we're all exposed to the brokenness in our world and we cope with the disappointment by covering our hearts with the concrete of cynicism and skepticism. It's like we coat our hearts with that. We say, I, I will never be hurt again. So I will withdraw from that. And we coat our hearts with cynicism and skepticism. And it's like concrete. And the only thing about it is once it dries, it is incredibly hard to get off. I used to work at a camp in camp called Camp Grayson. I think I mentioned this place a few times. It was a pretty pivotal part of my life. Before I went to seminary, I worked at Grayson, and I was on the maintenance staff during the winter. And so during the off season, when the, when the campers weren't there, we basically built stuff and got the camp ready for the summer. And I remember one time we were replacing a footer. We were expanding the dining hall and it bust up uh, a concrete wall. And I don't know if you've ever busted up concrete before. It is backbreaking. It is loud. It is dusty. It's basically miserable. And having to bust up a 40-year-old reinforced concrete footer was really, really hard because it, you, you may or may not know that good concrete continues to harden as it sits. It continues to just get harder and harder and harder and harder. And after it's been there for, you know, 100 years or something, it finally starts going back the other way. But it literally is still curing and getting harder while it's there. And we finally, when we tried everything to get this out, we tried sledgehammers and jackhammers and backhoes and just anything we could. And we finally got this little wall out because we had to, had to get out of the way so we could expand it. But it took 
days and days and days of just back-breaking hard work to get through it. And the thing about it is like ministry and family life, parenting, if you have small children, bless you. Um, our jobs, they all feel like this sometimes. Uh, you keep pounding away and you never feel like you're getting anywhere. And it seems like the harder you work, just the more skepticism and cynicism and just hardness of heart that you're met with. Seems like the, just when you think you've rounded the corner, then you, you pound into the sled, you pound with the sledgehammer, and there you see another piece of reinforcing rod running through the concrete. You're, uh. Every year, every semester in RUF, towards the end of the semester when everybody's in final exams, we go through the library, my students and I, we go through the library with just a big basket of candy. Because I don't know if you've ever been, if it's been a while since you've been in the library during final exam week, it is a stress furnace. And it smells like a gym sock because people literally just sleep in there. I mean, they just live in there. And so all we're trying to do is just go through there uh, with RUF and just say, look, we love you and we just want to encourage you in your exams. You have to do a good job. And all we're doing is handing out, like, you know, prepackaged candy. You know, it's not like the creepy guy with the brownies that you know they from. It's like, no, this is an unopened bag of candy. We just want you to have it. And the skepticism that we're met with is just overwhelming. Walk up to him and you just want to hand the student a piece of candy just to say, look, we love you because you're doing a good job with your exams. I don't want anything from you. And they're constantly looking back at us like, what's this for? What are you doing for? What's the catch here? I mean, it's, it's palpable, the skepticism. You're like, look, I don't want anything from you. Do you want a sucker or not? Like, that's it. This, this is as easy as this transaction. You either want it or you don't. And the thing about college students, and I think the world in general, is they're very cynical towards religious institutions, especially Christians. And in all actuality, it's really kind of hard to blame them, because people have been treating them like projects. Maybe they've done the evangelism bait-and-switch tactics. Maybe being invited to a Super Bowl party thinking that they were just going to come and have a fun time with their neighbors, only to have you know this really heavy-duty evangelistic thing laid on them. And they feel bait this feels like a bait-and-switch. Uh, maybe being talked at instead of listened to. Having their questions dismissed with the wave of a hand. Oh, you just don't get it. Rather than having somebody actually engage with them. And this might be your life right now. You might be full of cynicism and skepticism towards the church because of past hurts. Or you may have taken so many relational body shots that you're just tired and worn out. And our vision for RUF, and I think our vision for the church, is a safe place for skeptics and a rest stop for tired Christians to process the gospel of Jesus Christ within a community of grace and fellowship. It's kind of the vision. A safe place for skeptics and a rest stop for tired Christians to just process who Jesus is in a community of grace and friendship. And the vision isn't just for RUF, it's also for the church and for individual Christians too, that if you're not a Christian, I mean, we're so glad that you're here. If you really thought this was a Starbucks, we're just glad you're here. Thanks for coming. And I hope this will this might help give you a better understanding of kind of what the church is really about. We really don't want to talk at you. We still love you. Point you to Jesus. Because we need Jesus too. We're messed up. And the big question then becomes, what vision does Paul give us for the ministry, for ministry to a skeptical and broken campus, community, and world around us? So there's two points we're going to look at this morning if you're a note-taking person. We're going to look at a ministry marked by the gospel and a ministry marked by relationships. Two points, and the first point's going to be way longer, so when I get to the second point and you start having heart palpitations, take a deep breath, it's on purpose, okay? 
says in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And the context suggests that some had accused Paul of being a fraud or a charlatan. And he's writing to fellow Christians. So as he says, brothers, to reassure them of his integrity. And he writes, our coming to you was not in vain. And that word translated vain here actually means empty-handed. We didn't come to you empty-handed. And it's almost the image of being an empty suit or having no substance. We didn't come to you as just this vacuous empty suit. We didn't come to you with nothing in our hands. We're bringing you something. But notice Paul just doesn't say, I'm not a fake, trust me. You know, like, this snake oil really works well, trust me. You know, how many, how many bottles do you want? You know, he's not saying that. He backs up his claim by referencing something the Thessalonians would have known about. Look at what happens in verse 2. Where he says, But though we have already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. So he says we've been, we suffered and we were shamefully treated at Philippi. And this is described in Acts 16, verses 19 to 24, where Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, they were stripped naked, they were jailed and put in the stocks. Why? All for preaching the gospel. That's it. There's a lot of these people in the world right now where that's happening. Right now. And we need to pray for them. Like, that's actually happen happening. We think, oh, this is first century stuff. No, people are still being beaten. And people are still being put in stocks into the jails for just simply preaching the gospel. We need to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters across the world. And Paul boldly proclaimed the gospel under real threat of persecution and a possible repeat of what happened in Philippi. But notice, boldness was in God, not in himself. And we usually think of Paul as this brashly confident guy, you know, like he goes in and he... He's ministering to the Gentiles, and he's shipwrecked, and he's beaten, and he's, I'm Paul. You know, we used to think of him as like a superhero. I hope to meet him one day in heaven. I'm just amazingly curious of what he's like. Um, but the thing about it is, we used to think of him as this brashly confident guy, which, I mean, he certainly was. I mean, he did some amazing things, but bare confidence in and of yourself quickly crumbles under the weight of physical suffering and public humiliation. It's got to be something more than that. It's got to be, there has to be an anchor point. It's not just, I'm so amazing, because as soon as the stripes start coming, that quickly falls apart. I mean, remember, he was later imprisoned and executed for his preaching. And something else had to be motivating him to preach so boldly in the midst of such conflict. And what gave Paul that confidence? His confidence came from the content of his message, which was the gospel. Romans 1.16, another familiar verse that Paul wrote. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, how did he know this? How could he write words like this? How did he know that? His own conversion. When he went from Saul, God met him on the road and gave him a new name, Paul. I don't know if you know about what Saul was before, who, how, who Saul was before he became Paul. He's a persecutor of Christians. You know, he presided over the stoning of Stephen, and they lay their cloaks down in front of him, and he's looking at it. He's, he was the man. And suddenly, God gives him a new name. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my church? And he gives him a new name, and God says, go and minister to the people that you hate. Go to the Gentiles, the people that you think are unclean. Go and minister to them. I'm going to give you a new name and a new mission. And he writes, It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes in Jews and the Greeks. And he knew firsthand that God could change a hard heart. 
And one of our simple presuppositions in the RUF philosophy of ministry is a simple phrase, God is at work. And it's so simple, but I still struggle to believe it, and I bet you do too. Because my first semester on campus, we planted RUF at CMU four years ago. I just finished my fourth academic year. I'm still amazed that we're here, by God's grace. And that first semester, I was running myself ragged all over campus, trying to be everywhere all the time and meet everybody. And I remember going to RUF training in, in uh, December, and I was describing my struggles to my prayer group, and the veteran campus minister looked at me and said, you know what, you believe God is at work, but only when you're on campus. Bingo. I mean, talk about pin the tail on the donkey. Bam. He nailed me. And he was so right. Because I had confidence, but only in my own efforts, that the Holy Spirit couldn't show up unless Dave was there. How arrogant is that? But that's really what I believed. I didn't believe that God was at work. I believed that God was at work when Dave was around. And my own efforts, that, that was killing me. And Paul had confidence, not in himself, but in the power of God to rescue broken sinners by the proclamation of the best news humanity could ever hear. And that is the free offer of grace to broken, rebellious people. Amazing. Tim Keller once said, the only plausible objection to the Christian faith is that it's just too good to be true. Have you ever gone back to like kid's story Bible? Like kid's story, kid's version of the gospel. That you're messed up and that Jesus died for messed up people and that God is in the business of seeking and saving messed up people like you and me. It is that simple. That is a reason to get up in the morning. That's a reason to swing your, your feet out of bed and get up. That's really true. And that's got to sink into our hearts. And I've been asked before, how do you work in a campus environment that's so hostile towards the Christian faith with professors and student groups? And the answer is really, really simple. I have to trust that God's at work and that the gospel is powerful enough to break a heart of stone. Because if it's all up to me to keep swinging the hammer, I'm going to fail. And you think about what happens as you want to minister to the world around you. If it is all up to you when you think about your neighborhood and you think about Virginia Beach and you think about just the brokenness of our world, if it is all left up to you to keep swinging the hammer, you are going to fail. Yes, you will. You're not big enough, strong enough, and awesome enough to do it on your own. That's why you need the power of God for salvation, the gospel. The content is what matters. I mean, look at me. I am not the picture of cutting-edge evangelism. I mean, come on. Look at this. I have blue khakis on. But you think, I go on campus and I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm like, they're way cooler than I am. I'm 33, driving a minivan, and have two kids, and they're so awesome. These students are so fun. And I think, what keeps me going on campus? I really have to believe that God's at work, and the gospel is the power of salvation. That's not me. It's not you either. It's this. And Jesus showing up and meeting us here in the midst of it. That's good news, y'all. I mean, have you ever made bread? Mm -hmm. Nothing beats hot, fresh bread out of the oven. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. You walk in a house where somebody's making a loaf of bread, and you immediately make a beeline for the kitchen. You're like, what's going on here? And what's the most important step to making bread? What's the most important step to making dough? Let the yeast rise, right? If you overwork it, your bread's going to be terrible. And you have to step away and let it rise. And too often we make the gospel so complicated and we end up overworking the dough when the core message is remarkably simple. And what we do from week to week in the church and what we do week to week on campus is remarkably simple. And you might be wondering, what do we do in RUF? Or what's the, how does this impact the way we look at the church? I mean, we do large groups. 
like this. We do small groups that meet throughout the week, and we have one-on-ones and some events. Does that sound similar to kind of what you're doing? Yeah. And we talk about Jesus a lot. We talk about grace a lot. We talk about hope a lot. Why? It's not moralism. It's not this performance treadmill. It's not you need to go clean your life up and you need to get it all together. Or what's wrong with you? Oh, you're not having evangelistic conversations with every single person you meet in Walmart? That must mean you're not a Christian. What a load. That is terrible. It's not that. We talk about grace and Jesus and the sovereignty of God. That God can break a heart of stone. That's what we talk about. I mean, how do you minister in a skeptical world? That's what we're talking about. It's simple. Don't overwork the dough. Stop swinging the sledgehammer and keep faithfully and lovingly putting the bread of life in front of people. Take your hands off of it every now and then. And just let it rise and watch God do something amazing. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I still have some left to go, but this just came to mind. I was at a, fall con I was at a summer conference this past week, and there were these guys. This is hundreds of college students going down for a week of teaching. It's the national conference that we do. And we're down there, and there are these guys in a rental house next to us down in Panama City Beach, Florida. And they are absolutely having like a multi-day party. I mean, smoking weed, drinking, acting foolishly, coming down to the beach and interacting with our students and offering, you know, various things to our ladies who were there. And we wanted just to beat them up. And we had a dance party one night that was down on the beach. And, of course, those guys were like, hey, lights, and that looks fun. Let's go down there. Well, they went down there, and we were expecting, like, we kind of had them on our radar. You know, I mean, one of the things that we, that's great about our country is you are, you can be free to be an idiot. I mean, that's, that's fine. So, I mean, it's like we can't go, hey, stop that. But, I mean, we can try to mitigate it. So we go down there, and one of the guys who's on safety, he's going to be the new RUF campus minister at LSU. And, he, and these guys come down, and he just kind of starts striking up a conversation, trying to keep them kind of away. We put our new interns down there as bouncers. And the guys got talking, and they said, hey, we're students from LSU. And Andy said, well, I'm going to be the new campus minister there coming up in the fall, and I would love to just hang out with you. And we're actually down there in a ministry call where have. One of the guys looked at him and said, I would love to have coffee with you because my parents never speak to me. Can we please hang out? Of those four guys that were there, Andy got four of their numbers, and he's going to talk to them about something. Wow. You don't think God's at work? You don't think God can just blow your mind when you finally get to take your fingers off the dough? Take your fingers out and watch what God does. It is amazing what God can do. Amazing. Are you trusting in Jesus to change your neighbor's hearts, or are you just trusting in how well you can work the spiritual dough in front of them? Uh, uh. <laughs> Me, I'm the second part. Ooh, how spiritual can I be in front of you? I can be all pastory in front of you. And really, I have to trust that God's at work. What are you really trusting in? Jesus to change your hearts or how theological you are? One can change a person's heart. The other one just shows people how smart you are when you're really not. <laughs> I mean, be bold in your message, but back it up with a life of humility and integrity. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I mean, a ministry marked by the gospel is a ministry marked by humility and honesty. That the gospel gives us freedom to admit when we're wrong and stop trying to flatter other people. 
I mean, our RUF banner on campus that we fly is a Christian fellowship for imperfect people. That's what it says. That's kind of our deal. And the goal is not to create a holy huddle. The goal is to gather students so that they can see the beauty of Jesus proclaimed through the lives of imperfect people. That is exactly what's going on here every Sunday. And Steve Brown wrote this great book. It's called Three Free Sins. And here was this great quote that he said. He said, I did what every bald guy tries to do at the beginning, hide the baldness. I moved hair around to those places where growth was sparse. If you've ever heard Steve Brown, he has this really deep voice. And he said, but I can't do it. But trying, he said, but trying to hide baldness is sort of like self-righteousness. One doesn't even know it or admit it or think that anybody else notices it until a good wind destroys the ruse and everybody sees the truth. It starts with lowering the part of one's hair and eventually it comes to growing the hair long enough where it will and brushing it over to cover the places where it won't. There were even times when I refused to take speaking engagements, and he writes, I can't believe I'm even telling you this, because I wouldn't have time to fix my hair and cover my baldness. He says, it was an atheist friend who messed up the gig. Can I ask you a question, he said? Of course. Are you a preacher? You know that I am. How can you be a preacher who is into honesty and stuff like that and be that dishonest with your hair? <laughs> Frankly, it's not only dishonest, it looks silly. Don't you know that everybody knows it and they laugh behind your back? How would your ministry to other people change if you stopped trying to cover up your bald spots and started being honest about your life? How would your ministry change if you, the gospel, really set you free to be okay with the bald spots that you have in your life? And you quit trying to cover them up. And you're just honest. Because it was in that moment where those bald spots that Jesus met you there. How would that look? It's scary, but it's essential because it takes the focus off of us and puts it on Jesus. Because y'all students and your neighbors can smell faith coming from a mile away. And they are not interested in hearing you call them up a hill to the moral high ground that you have sole claim of. They are much more interested in hearing how Jesus has been precious to you in the midst of your guilt and your shame and your struggles and your everyday life. I grew up hearing that I needed to get my life together and not screw up because I didn't want to embarrass the family. That bees on the report card were not an option in my house. And to this day, I hate the word unacceptable because that's what my dad said. And my dad loved me, but that's what he was telling me. And I became a Christian in high school through young life, but I still thought it was about me keeping the rules and flying right. And Jesus became precious to me in college when the Holy Spirit drilled a tiny hole in my performance hardened heart and helped me see that my spiritual report card was actually covered in F's. Jesus didn't make sense until that day. And look at what happens in verse 6. Where he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from the others, though we could have made demands as apostles from Christ. He's like, we could have come in and just kind of, kind of told you what's what. But I'm so thankful that someone back then in college had the boldness to tell me what I really needed to hear instead of what I wanted to hear. And that was really good news when it came coupled with a loving, patient relationship, which is our second point, which is going to be shorter. How do we reach out to, to a skeptical world? It's a ministry marked by the gospel, but it's also a ministry marked by relationships. That content has to be delivered in such a way, and that way is through a relationship. We also need to see how Paul delivered his message to the Thessalonians. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only uh, the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become dear to us. 
pastor loving his people. And this is a direct response to the charges listed in verses 5 and 6. That it was all about flattery and greed and seeking fame and throwing his apostolic position around. He's writing and he says, we were gentle among you. And he gives this image of a mother nursing her very young children. It's this picture of a deep, intimate, connected relationship. And what motivated that relationship? What motivated Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians where he could write this letter to him? It's verse 8. He said, being affectionately desirous of you, you had become dear to us. Like, we love you. And what did he give them? He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our very lives. And that Greek word for selves is actually the word for soul. We were ready to give you our soul, my guts, my everything, the core of who I am. I wanted to give you me because it was so important. And what's this look like in college ministry and church ministry where you are? How's this look just in the midst of the world? And when we try to give our we try to give our lives to our students, and we're called to give our lives away to our neighbors. And what that means is meals in our home, fixing flat tires, playing games, crying with them, laughing with them, grieving with them. We let them into our messiness. We don't always clean up before before they come over. Our house is often a mess, and we're chasing our kids down. But we want them to see that we want our students to see that we're not perfect. We don't have it all together. I mean, like, people, you're never going to have people over to your home if you are so worried about getting the vacuum cleaner out before people come over. Your house is never going to be spotless enough. If, that, if that's keeping you from it, then you just need to invite some people into your junk. Leave the dishes in the sink, please, for the sake of the gospel. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's hard work and it's inconvenient, but it's an essential part of our ministry. Ministry is not abstract or complicated, but it is deeply relational and it's often inconvenient. I mean, think about it. Jesus left the very throne of heaven to rescue us from sin. And the very least we can do is inconvenience ourselves every now and then for our neighbors or someone we may have taken a vow to love at the church. I mean, relational ministry might sound scary because of those fine print moments where you stuck your neck out to love someone else and you got burned. Join the club. Jesus frees us to stick our neck out to love others because he stuck, he stuck his neck out to love us. I'm almost done. How are you inviting people into your messiness? Or are they only welcome into your life after you've vacuumed your heart? When are people invited into your life? The vision for gospel-centered ministry is patient, honest, gospel-driven relationships. And it is amazing how God uses other people to break through our hearts of stone. I mean, you remember me trying to pound out that concrete footer back when we started? How hard it was? Well, fast forward seven years, and I hear about this new product called EcoBust. And instead of pounding away with a sledgehammer, all you need to do to, to break up concrete is drill a few small holes, and then you mix this stuff up and you pour in the product. And what you do is you go to sleep, and the next morning you wake up and the concrete's busted up because it expands. And so you drill a bunch of little holes in it, and you just go to bed. You take your hands off the dough, and you wake up the next morning, and boom, this concrete footer is like lying in this gravel in front of you. It's amazing. I mean, that's what we're trying to do with students at CNU, and that's what I hope we're trying to do in the church as we look at our, as we look out at our neighbors, is we don't want to sledgehammer their outward behavior. I don't want the crust. I want the heart. I don't, I don't tell you to I'm quit smoking and quit doing that. I want your heart. That's what Jesus wants. We build relationships with students and with our neighbors and pray that the Holy Spirit will drill a few, will drill a small hole into their concrete-covered hearts so that the ego bust of the gospel will break through that skepticism 
and help them see Jesus in the richness of grace. That's the, minute, that's the call. It's not to go to your neighbors and keep swinging the sledgehammer and working your fingers to the bone. It's trusting that God can use this small, tiny little hole that's, that's drilled into their heart. That you don't even do that. The Spirit does that. And that the eco-bust of the gospel will go in there and crack that hard crust off of their heart so that they can see again, so that they can live again, so that heart will beat again. That's what ministering to a skeptical world looks like. It's not saying, oh, you're so skeptical. It's what D.T. Niles said is the essence of Christianity. It's one beggar telling the other beggars where to find the bread. And we do so with humility and with grace and with a love for people. Driven by the gospel, and it's driven by relationships. That's the call. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and you care for us. Thank you, Lord, that you can work in spite of us. We just think about stories where we've just been blown away by just how you work in people's hearts. I mean, the students at LSU, just our neighbors around us, we're amazed when we actually take a look around and say, man, you really are at work. Help us to trust that. It's so hard. It's so simple, but it's so hard to believe. Help us to really trust that you are at work. And thank you for the privilege that we get, as broken as we are, to even just have some small part to play in the midst of that. What a, what a privilege. What an honor. Father, and, uh, help us to love others as you love us. And help us to care for others as you care for us. And help us to be beggars, showing the other beggars where to find the bread. We ask these things in Christ's name.